Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the TR90 Body Burn 30 support call. This call happens Monday through Friday at this time, which for me is 6.40 in the morning. Adjust it for your time zone. If you're mountain time, it's 7.40, 8.40 Texas time, 9.40 Michigan and East Coast time. With that being said, for those of you that do not know who I am, I'm Susan Mann out of Portland, Oregon. Welcome you to the TR90 call. I have my education is in believe it or not education and primarily elementary ed however i've had a huge interest in both health nutrition and exercise for most of my life and so these calls just sort of kind of fell into place for me absolutely love the tr90 program if you miss any of these calls you can go back and pick them up on sound S-O-U-N-D, cloud, C-L-O-U-D. Put in Frank, F-R-A-N-K, Lomas, L-O-M-A-S, and TR90. And these calls are archived back now more than nine years. And I want to do a shout-out to Brian Curry because he also helps to make sure that our recordings are as clear as possible, and he helps to make sure that everything gets shifted and posted like it does between both he and Frank. If you ever miss these calls, and, you know, you might get your podcast someplace else besides SoundCloud. If you do, if you put in Frank Lomas and TR90, they could well pop up, as well as Solutions for the Digit 4, Anti-Aging, all run together. And you may find your podcast, find it on your podcast service. With that being said, the TR90 program is, you've got one, when you're first starting out, is one really good clean lean meal a day, two shakes a day, three snacks a day, 30 grams of protein, at least 30 grams of protein at at least three of those meals. Getting seven to nine hours of rest daily, seven plus servings of fruits and vegetables, uh, let's see, 30 minutes of moderate to heavy exercise at least five days a week making sure to drink plenty of water to stay hydrated. Um, current thinking is at least one, o- one ounce for every two pounds you weigh. So if you weigh 100 pounds, you should be drinking a minimum of 50 ounces of water. Start with wherever you're at and work up to um, your optimum where you need to be for staying hydrated. With that being said, I'm always looking for information to share with you that will help support that TR90 lifestyle, and it is a lifestyle change. And today, I'm sharing some information out of a book that's called Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease. It was written by Robert H. Lustig, L-U-S-T-I-G, M-D, M-S-L, and... Um, He also was the author of the Fat Chance Cookbook. And this goes more into, this particular book goes more into the science behind why we should be eating what we should be eating. So last time I shared with you information on how we got to the point where they started saying, oh, got to watch your fat and started into low fat. Well, what went wrong in that process that it seems that um, in order, the best, 
Dietary fats are your omega-3 fatty acids, which those sources are wild fish and flaxseed oil. And for the med- for medicinal value, they're anti-inflammatory. They lower serum triglycerides, and they repair membranes. The monounsaturated fats, like olive oil, canola oil, and coconut oil, stimulates liver metabolism and reduces atherogenesis. The polysaturated fats, like vegetable oils, they're anti-inflammatory, but in excessive amounts, they can cause immune dysfunction. Saturated acid fats, which come from grass-fed animal meats, milk, and dairy products, they have an atherogenic, in specific genetic backgrounds, familial hypercholesterolemia, or FH, and raises levels of type A LDL very high. The medium chain triglycerides, which include your palm oil, your coconut oil, your uh, palm kernel oil, energy source. Some suggestion to stimulate of some suggestion of stimulation of atherosclerosis. Your omega three fatty six fatty acids, not omega three omega six fatty acids. Those are your farm raised animals and fish that are fed on corn and soy. Atherosclerosis insulin resistance, immune dysfunction, and pro-inflammatory, so that encourages inflammation on those omega-6s. Trans fats and partially hydrogenated oils. The dietary source is synthetic and is found in processed foods only. Atherosclerosis and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So definitely you want the Omega-3s, you want the monounsaturated and the polyunsaturated. Some of the saturated fats, and then you start getting into some um, interesting territory. So nevertheless, in the early 1980s, none of these concerns about sugar, carbohydrates, and types of fats was known. With the endorsement of the dietary guidelines, Keys delivered the knockout punch and won the food fight while Yenkin was thrown under the bus. We were beseeched to reduce our consumption of dietary fat from 40 to 30%, and the food industry had to retool its products to meet the demand for low-fat fare. This meant altering its recipes. But when you take the fat out, the food tastes like cardboard. The palatability equals sales and food industry had to find ways to make this low-fat fare palatable. They therefore upped the carbohydrate content, specifically sugar. An example is Nabisco's snack wells, which are stocked on the shelves. For each serving, 2 grams of fat were removed and 13 grams of carbohydrate, four of which were sugar, were added. In the 1990s, there was a major shift in the availability of specific foodstuffs. The foods containing fat, such as milk, saw a drop or a stabilization in consumption. Conversely, levels of refined carbohydrates devoid of their inherent fiber went through the roof. Remember, refined carbohydrates means lots of insulin.
which means storage for energy storage in fat tissue. Thus, the obesity epidemic was born in the aftermath of this seemingly logical and well-meaning, yet tragically flawed understanding of our biochemistry. The gradual understanding that dietary fat isn't always the demon that it was portrayed to be in dietary in the dietary guidelines and the work of Robert D. Atkins and other pioneers led to the introduction of the low-carb diet in the American lexicon. Restaurants started serving cheeseburgers wrapped in lettuce leaf instead of a bun, hold the fries. By the early 2000s, the carbohydrate-restricted diet was put to the test and went head-to-head against the low-fat diet for treatment of obesity and type 2 diabetes. From controlled studies, we learned that the following we learned the following five lessons. First, carbohydrate restriction improves glucose control, the primary target of diabetes therapy. Second, carbohydrate-restricted diets are at least as effective for weight loss as low-fat diets. Third, substitution of fat for carbohydrates is generally beneficial for markers of of and the incidence of heart disease. The fourth lesson we learned was carbohydrate restriction improves features of metabolic syndrome. And the fifth lesson we learned, the beneficial effects of carbohydrate restriction are independent of weight loss. Carbohydrate restriction lives on in many guises throughout the world, throughout the food world. Yet, so do the vegan, traditional Japanese, and other low-fat, high-carbohydrate diets, because the two overlap. There is one specific foodstuff that is both fat and carbohydrate at the same time. It's the one item that's excluded from every successful diet in the world. It's the real omnivore's curse. It's the real culprit of the global obesity and metabolic syndrome panic. <clears throat> so, um, fructose, the toxin. Well, can low-fat and low-carb diets both be right or both be wrong? What to do? What do the Atkins diet, which is protein and fat, and the Ornish diet, which is vegetables and whole grain, and the traditional Japanese diet, carbohydrate and protein, have in common. On the surface, they may seem diametrically opposite, but they all have one thing in common. They restrict sugar. Every successful diet in history restricts sugar. Sugar is, bar none, the most successful food additive known to man. When the food industry adds it for palpability, we buy more because it's cheap. Some version of sugar appears in virtually every processed foodstuff now manufactured in the world. Sugar, and specifically fructose, is the Lex Luthor of this story. Nutritionists routinely categorize sugar as empty calories, interchangeable with calories from starch. But sugar has a special payload. Sugar... In other words, sucrose is made up of half glucose and half fructose. It's the fructose that makes it sweet, and that 
ultimately is the molecule we seek. It's the fructose that causes chronic metabolic disease. So sugar, despite ostensibly being a carbohydrate, is really both a fat, because that's how fructose is metabolized in the liver, and a carbohydrate, because that's how glucose is metabolized, are all rolled into one. Both pathways have to work overtime, which is why sugar is the real omnivore's dilemma. Now, if you're starving and energy depleted, consuming sugar can replete your liver's glucose stores more rapidly, which it can be beneficial. So offensive wine men, after three hours on the gridiron, can consume all the Gatorade they want, but the overwhelming majority of people who are neither starving nor energy depleted, and there are now 30% more obese individuals than the undernourished ones on the planet, our bodies have not adapted to our current environmental sugar glut, and it is killing us slowly. Fructose has increased both as the percentage of our calorie intake and our total consumption. When you add it up, Americans currently consume sugar at a rate of 5.6 ounces a day or 130 pounds a year. Our current fructose consumption has increased fivefold compared to 100 years ago and has more than doubled in the last 30 years. A recent survey by the CDC estimates that 50% of Americans that have one can of sugared soda per day and 5% of Americans have four or more. In other words, we're not just eating more, we're increasing both the amount of sugar we eat and the sugar as a percentage of our daily caloric allotment. The inescapable reality is that 20 to 25% of all calories we consume, a total of 22 tablespoons per day, comes from some variation of sugar. And some adolescents are consuming 40% of their calories in sugar. This can't be good for you. Okay, America is sugar-dipped and candy-coated. But that's not true elsewhere. Or is it? World consumption has tripled in the last 50 years, while the population has only doubled. That means our global per capita intake of sugar has increased by 50%. Commiserate commiserate with this pandemic. The upper threshold of 200 calories per day of sugar allocated by the American Heart Association in its scientific statement for optimum cardiovascular health has been exceeded in virtually every country on the planet. This is a massive increase from just 30 years ago when most countries were bereft of sugar. When reading the title, the title of this chapter, your first reaction may be, aha, I knew it, high fructose corn syrup is evil. You're half right. Media attention and consumer activist groups have started to vilify the high fructose corn syrup or the HFCS due to its synthetic nature and assumed effect on the obesity epidemic. As a result, its consumption has been declining since 2007, but our rates of obesity have remained unchanged. High fructose corn syrup is ubiquitous in the United States and Canada, 
but is used more sparingly in the European Union and Japan. The rest of the world uses sucrose. Australia and the entire Pacific Rim, for example, have only sucrose, but they are right behind us in terms of obesity and metabolic syndrome. Scientific studies are of acute satiety versus energy intake of metabolic alterations support the notion that HFCS is technically no different from sucrose, although HFCS does generate a higher blood higher blood fructose level, which could have negative metabolic consequences. This has led to the voracious vociferous campaign by the Corn Refiners Association and its public commercials arguing that HFCS is a natural, out-of-the-ground, and benign sweetener. HFCS is biochemically similar to natural sucrose, made of glucose and fructose, making corn syrup glucose through the enzymatic process so that the approximately half of the glucose comes from fructose in order to make it sweeter. The question is not whether HFCS is worse or better than sugar. The question is whether sugar in any of its forms is toxic. The conscious, health conscious among you may opt for juice over soda. For those of you who can afford it, you skip the sunny delight in favor of natural 100% fruit juices made by Oddwalla or other organic companies. They tout multiple health benefits and claim that because they're devoid of all added sweeteners that they are in fact good for you. Wrong. The fruit is good for you because it also contains fiber. In fact, the calorie-for-calorie, calorie 100% orange juice is worse for you than soda because the orange juice contains 1.8 grams of fructose per ounce, while the soda contains 1.7 grams of fructose per ounce. All caloric sweeteners contain fructose. White sugar, cane sugar, beet sugar, fruit sugar, table sugar, brown sugar, its cheaper cousin, high-fructose corn syrup, Add to this maple syrup, honey, and agave nectar. It's all the same. The vehicle is irrelevant. It's the payload that matters. The bottom line, sugar consumption is a problem. 33% of sugar consumption comes from the beverages, and the biggest abusers are the poor and the undeserved. And with that, I think I'm going to stop at that because that brings us up to carbohydrates. I'm going to take us all off mute so we can say goodbye to each other. So there are some sound reasons why we should be eliminating that sugar from our diets. If you're looking to build a new skin business, hop over to Facebook, One Team Global Live now. Otherwise, um, come back tomorrow and find out whether a carbohydrate is a carbohydrate or is it. And we'll be delving a little bit deeper into glucose and why we probably don't want as much of it into our diet as we would like or as we currently have. With that, this is Susan Mann, November 22nd, 2021, signing out.